0: Hello and welcome. Welcome to this IFG live event on how the government should go about the business of lifting the lockdown. It's one of the questions of this week. It's going to be one of the questions of many weeks to come, I think. I'm Bronwyn Maddox and I'm delighted to be bringing you this discussion with many of the best IFG people who've been working on this flat out. We put out a big paper last week arguing that when the government brought in the lockdown, it didn't really have a choice, might have had a choice about exactly when. But given the public health emergency, it didn't have much room for manoeuvre about whether or not it did it. Six weeks on, it absolutely does have a choice. We've got signs of economic damage rising and while public consent has absolutely held up, there are questions about how long that will go on for. So these are all the questions we're going to discuss about how the government actually should go about making that decision to raise the lockdown. And it is, of course, what the government is discussing at the moment. It's going to bring its plans to us at the end of the week. The end of the week at the moment being Sunday, it seems. So with me to discuss this, I've got Alex Thomas, who's program director of our work on civil service. Uh, Dr. Gemma Tetlow, who's our chief economist, who's one of the main authors of that report I referred to last week. Giles Wilkes is one of our senior fellows, author of another report we put out last week about the support for businesses and what the government should do, how it should think about that. And Dr Catherine Haddon, who is our senior fellow looking at all kinds of constitutional things, and in this case, particularly on the question of government communications, parliamentary and public consent for all that. Well, lots to talk about, and I know a lot of you are sending in your questions already, which I can see coming. So thanks for that. Do keep them coming. Gemma, let's start with you. I really want to um, go to this question that we were addressing last week in the report. And perhaps you can just give us an outline of what the arguments were then.
1: Thank you, Braman. Well, as you said, back in late March, the government didn't really face any meaningful trade-off between shutting down the economy and all our normal day-to-day life in order to control the spread of coronavirus and wider considerations about other objectives that the government might have, such as maintaining our incomes and well-being. But as we have rolled forward, as we understand more about the disease and the the capacity to keep that under control and to treat sufferers increases government is now at a point where it is starting to face a decision about when and how to release some of those restrictions and how to balance off the risks from increasing the spread of the disease potentially through limiting those restrictions. But on the other hand wanting to minimise potential damage that might be being caused to other things that the government cares about in particular sort of potentially long-term economic harms that may be accruing as this shutdown goes on for longer and notwithstanding the very wide-ranging package of financial support that the government has offered to households and to businesses at the moment the government has set out five tests for what will guide when it lifts those restrictions Those five tests focus exclusively on limiting the spread of the disease and limiting the deaths from coronavirus. To the extent that the government clearly doesn't care solely about minimising deaths from coronavirus and it clearly doesn't, given that they are talking about trying to ease some of these restrictions already, the government those five tests do not provide a clear enough guide to what is actually going to shape the government's strategy to exiting the lockdown and they therefore need to be much clearer about what their objectives are and how they will trade off considerations that may pull against each other so if the need to limit the spread of the disease and try and stop the NHS being overwhelmed potentially by a second peak on the one hand and other objectives that the government may care about that may be being harmed by maintaining the lockdown on the other hand and in particular that's things like the long-term harm to the economy that may be building up but also potentially harms to people suffering from other conditions as the NHS's capacity has focused, has been focused so heavily on treating coronavirus rather than other things. So that's the trade-offs that the government's going to be facing over the next few weeks. One of the points we, or big point we made in the paper, was that there can be no grand plan for this exit strategy. The government will not be able to stand up next Sunday and set out its grand plan for coming out of this. And that is because there are so many unknowns around this. We don't know everything there is to know about the disease we don't know how it might have a spread might pick up again as we start to ease restrictions that's also partly because we don't know how people are going to respond will people continue to maintain high standards of personal hygiene and maintain social distancing even once they are allowed back out into some of those public places or will they not that will matter we also don't know exactly how the economy is being harmed by the continuing lockdown or indeed how the economy will start to respond as those restrictions are eased. For example, do people come out of this with lots of money that they've inadvertently saved up and want to go back and spend it and so the demand will be there as businesses start to reopen or do we see something more like what appears to have happened in china as they've used restrictions which is actually that people continue to be quite nervous and the demand for the businesses that are trying to reopen just isn't there and how does that shape the way that the government needs to approach the economic support that sustaining that and perhaps adapting it as we try and reopen the economy there's a huge amount of uncertainty about all of these and that means the government is going to need to take small steps it's going to need to look at the evidence as it starts to emerge both from the uk but also from other countries as they in some cases move ahead of us down this path and iterate its approach gathering in all of that evidence as it can and so that, those were a couple of the big points that are making in the paper this week or last
0: week rather yeah uh, it still feels like this week. Chairman, uh, that fantastically clear um, uh, overview of it all, let me just uh, dig into one of those points. You mentioned the five tests that the government has, and one of your arguments was, um, look, the, these aren't adequate because they're so much focused on public health. They don't really give you a guide to these trade-offs. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, If you took them at face value, and particularly the fifth test, which talks about avoiding the risk that there would be a second spike that could overwhelm the NHS, in a sense until we have a vaccine for this disease that works there is always going to be a risk that there would be a second spike in this disease so if you took those tests at face value you would never re- release any of these restrictions since the government clearly is thinking about trying to ease the restrictions they're not a good enough guide of what is actually going to shape their decisions and how they're going to trade these things off mm-hmm. and the government therefore needs to be much clearer with people both to help people plan and understand what's coming down the road but also just These will be huge decisions that affect our lives. They're not decisions on which this government was elected. There was no manifesto that said, this is how we will approach these and how we'll trade off these priorities. The government needs to be much more upfront about how it is actually trading off these different things, in particular because different groups of the population are affected differently by the sorts of risks that we're talking about here, um, and that the government will be making
0: decisions about how you prioritise those things. Yeah, the Conservative Manifesto of November feels a like very long time ago. Uh, Alex, let's come on to your, your part of the world uh, and looking particularly at the civil service. And the government actually goes about making this kind of decision. How officials and ministers work together to to begin doing that?
2: Yes, I think. And um, I mean, to, to, to start with the, the point that you and, and Bromin and, and, and Gemma were just making, really, which is that um, while... The, uh you know the, the journey into the lockdown the decisions that were being made were absolutely kind of monumental decisions I and mean, huge decisions but in the end relatively straightforward trade-offs i mean the first thing um i've, I've been trying to sort of put myself in the mind of a minister or or, or or the government to try and think about how they might begin to go about making these decisions and the first thing they will uh, recognize is that um the the decisions on exit are far more complicated far more difficult involving trade-offs that are uh, you know economically so socially, also at legal risk and legal trade-offs that are far more uh, complex than, than, the, than the simple uh, kind of journey into, uh, into lockdown and also across the different nations of the, of the UK. So I've, I've, I've heard a number of people talk about, and I've, I think I've said myself, um, if I was a minister I'd be looking for a framework uh, to, to work with this, the civil service and work with civil servants to try and uh, make some of these decisions. And now sort of what does framework mean? What is the framework? And so uh, I think sort of what I'm talking about there is um, if, if you look at what, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see something a bit like this when, when the uh, UK uh, government um, uh, plans emerge, but if you look a bit at what the um, Republic of Ireland published on... Uh, Friday, there is a sort of almost a a matrix that runs through the different health, education, economic, social, retail um, uh, aspects of this and then sets those against uh, disease, healthcare capacity, testing, shielding and so gives, um, that doesn't give you the answers to, um, to how you take those decisions but it gives you a way of thinking about Uh, thinking about that framework and also then a way critically of explaining it to um, to the public. So if you look at the Irish plans, they've I mean, uh, as as Gemma said, you would expect and uh, uh, hope that they would um, iterate that and kind of refine it as time goes on. But they're thinking about it in terms of uh, three week waves from May the 18th, where initially uh, uh, certain um, relaxations will um, we, the, the Irish people could expect to come in on May the eighteenth, all the way through to the kind of end of those three-week cycles, sometime in August, when they're talking about uh, weddings and pubs and, uh, and and kind of return to work from normal. So that's that's how I would um, how I would kind of begin to characterize that. But the other things that. Thing that ministers and the civil servants will, will, will want is, is to know that these decisions while you might iterate on the detail the basic decision to start to move to lifting restrictions is going to stick because there's going to be nothing more damaging to um, to a government and to the reputation of, uh, of, of ministers if they have to do some enormous uh, u-turn or, or reverse ferret on this so they will have been uh, thinking very carefully about what are the what are the um what are the models, what are the uh what is the evidence that's going to give the maximum possible uh reassurance about um about it not not you know tweaking at the edges rather than a a, a major reverse and then the, the final thing is the clarity of it and the ability to communicate this this really detailed stuff um and because it's affecting all our lives so we're all we're all experts in uh, lockdown restrictions and distancing measures and so on so we saw over the weekend um uh, some of the uh, sort of communications tangle around 70 uh, over 70s and shielding things like that the, the details of this really matter and so there's going to need to be a really crisp and detailed communications plan
0: Yes, and of course that comes from. We'll come on, come on to that um, a bit later. But that comes from being. That comes from being clear about what you want to say, and uh, the government at the moment is not very clear about the over 70s, or hasn't been so far. But I mean, really, when we talk about a framework, we're really talking about the government trying to do two things, aren't we? One is. Try and lift restrictions on things that won't significantly increase the transmission rate of the disease they might be important they might not be i mean garden centers come to mind um, uh, not critical to the economy even in britain but um but uh, probably don't do very much to increase the spread of the disease and then on the other hand you've got things that are really really important might or uh, even if they might increase the transmission of the disease for example schools uh where the government given the the priority put on that and given the the worries about the cost uh, in lost education to uh, many people, including many of the the poorest children, um, that uh, that's also what they're looking at, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that comes to the point about, you know, we and others have made a lot of the uh, uh, the um, sort of limitations of a government saying that it's going to be guided by the science and guided by the uh, evidence. Um, in in the end, you can you know we 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 probably know enough already uh, about the uh, at least the significance of the impact of shutting schools uh, and uh, enough about some of the transmission risk. But no scientists, no um, uh, no. Boffin can uh, uh, can can make that decision about where that trade-off point is between um, between uh, getting uh, getting kids back to school and therefore getting more people back to um, to work uh, and the and, and the disease risk and that's going to go to the iteration point. But it speaks to the importance of these massive judgment calls that ministers are going to be making.
0: Yeah, so when is an iteration not a U-turn? You, you said there's nothing worse for their reputation than doing a U-turn. But if you think back to the beginning, actually they they did quite a lot very quickly as um, as the spread of the disease began to overtake the wash your hands. Um, There was a lot of talk about uh, 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 the 70 year olds being told to stay in their house uh, a couple of weeks from now and suddenly it all caught up. I mean, is is fear of failure really such a, should it be such a deterrent for ministers at this point when, as you say, they're going to have to experiment quite a lot with this?
2: So I think it's, I think uh, a lot of it comes back to the communications. So if you're communicating a direction of travel and um uh, uh, uh the you know the, the fundamental decisions and, and the way you want people to behave um the you need to maintain the public's confidence in that, and so if the uh, sort of if the uh, if the iterations mount up sufficiently, so that the public starts to lose its confidence in the decisions that are being made by ministers, then that's a then that's a problem. But it also goes to the original framing of it, which is that you you don't want to say this is the plan, as Gemma was saying, this is the plan now and forever, and must um uh, you know and must must always be the plan. But I do think, for example, if the government said, in three weeks time we're going to reopen schools and then three weeks after that they said oh we got that wrong we're going to have to shut schools and that is and it doesn't quite work with the timing of summer holidays but um, but that's that's
0: a U-turn yeah that is
2: a a a, a significant credibility uh, damaging and destroying problem for a government
0: Mm. Um, so okay we've got at least part of the communication strategy we can offer them which is this is an amendment this is an adjustment not a U-turn Um, But your point about schools is a very good example. Giles, let's come to your area and you've been writing a lot for us and thank you for that uh, on the the business bailout decisions which are incredibly complicated. What is the state of your thinking on this?
3: Well, I think we are about to um, enter the much more difficult period for the Treasury in a way that's rather similar to the talk about health measures. Um, It was kind of no dilemma zone at the beginning. Everyone agreed that we had to lock down really, really quickly for our health. And likewise, given the catastrophic effect on the economy, it looks like when we come and tot it up, the economy might have been contracting at a rate of 15 per cent per quarter um, as that happened, or even per month. In those circumstances, the only choice the Treasury had was to try to act as if it had insured the entire economy against this disaster and pay out as quickly as it could and turn all of those Treasury officials who are normally experts in advising how to say no to various ideas, how to reach various parts of the economy and stop them falling over, or the damage might be very permanent and very deep. So very impressed by the Treasury for that period, but it wasn't really a period of policy dilemma. Now, as we come out, And we need to encourage people to rejoin the economy and also remove some kinds of support which are discouraging people from doing so, like the job retention scheme. The dilemma has really become quite extreme, particularly as when it was a very short um, when it was expected to be a very short recession. You could go along with the assumption that the economy that comes out is the kind of the one that you want to be going in. And um, so you can say, look, we're not assuming any structural adjustment. We don't want any companies falling over. We want the people to be in the same jobs as they were going into this. Um, Now that assumption has disappeared, we know that the economy won't be the same. There are certain industries or even geographies that aren't going to be the same. For example, will London ever be as busy as it was Mm pre-coronavirus? And as a result, we need some economic restructuring, which means the tougher side of the treasury comes into play. The one that says, we don't want to spend money in this way or that way because it's keeping the existing structure going, which is exactly the opposite to what they were feeling at at the beginning of March. So how they transition is going to be very difficult and it's going to involve quite a lot of those tools they picked up around no deal planning, when they were trying to develop ways of finding out where the economy was going to suffer and responding to it. They might need it now in order to be able to make the correct decisions there and otherwise they need to rely on the market. The market, the normal people putting their money at risk in vent- ventures or saying sorry I don't want to lend money here because we don't think you've got a future. It's a lot of those decisions that we're going to need to rely on as the economy changes over the next few months. So much tougher times for Mr. Sunak I think.
0: And, and much tougher politically because that means pulling back government guarantees of, of things um and really as you said relying on the market and the market will say no to some of those businesses wanting support
3: absolutely i mean the politics of bailouts is normally really difficult because the people who are going to lose their job if you don't help them they they're the ones who will be marching down whitehall you can interview those people in the media the people who lose out from bailing out companies are the competitors who stay quiet or the taxpayer who doesn't know it's happening that's going to happen in reverse as all sorts of companies or interests like university sector, for example, say, why didn't you help me? So the politics is very, very awkward around that time and mistakes will be made. And you you, and Alex are both right. The public has shown real patience for a government changing course. But during this phase, it won't be so easy. Um, during this phase, people won't say, well, fair enough. We, we you know, people make mistakes. I don't think they're going to be so generous in future.
0: Yeah. There's an old saying in your line of work, isn't there? That governments are bad at picking winners, but losers are very good at picking governments.
3: That's, um, yes, an excellent one that Lord Mandelson likes to repeat and should yes. never be forgotten. Yes,
0: that uh, um, The government doesn't want to end up supporting just, just the weakest ones as the other ones find their own ways of uh, yes. keeping going.
3: Particularly as we went into this um, crisis with a real productivity problem. If there was anything that we needed, it was an economy that was kind of subject to harsher forces that kind of encourages us to do the things we're really, really good at. The last thing we can be doing is supporting activities that don't have a future. But no Treasury Minister has ever become popular saying that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, And and, and just briefly, you and I and Gemma have, have all um, asserted this point that we make in our paper that uh, we thought the government had no real choice at the beginning. Would you extend that to economic terms as well? That even in just pure economic terms, if you like, um, it may have been the best thing to do.
3: It was definitely the best thing to do in that what would have happened at the very beginning for maybe at least a month as the stock markets were collapsing at near record pace the decisions were totally heedless they were carting out the healthy as well as the uh, the unhealthy if you like that period has to come to a close at some point but if they hadn't come in and rescued all sorts of really valuable capital in the economy would have been destroyed they did absolutely have to make that decision but The the, the, because the banking system is quite healthy compared to where it was 12 years ago, Mm. you it began to reassert itself. And so to a certain degree, that period was always going to be very temporary.
0: Yeah, Gemma, would you agree? Sorry. Um,
1: Yes, I would agree. I mean, I I think Giles's point is absolutely right that there was a temporary period where everything had to shut down and we needed to keep everything on ice as a sort of first approximation to where we wanted to get back to. But as time goes on and as we start to want the economy to open back up again, they are going to need to adjust economic policies for that reason. And as Giles says, that will have to happen to an even greater degree if in fact we don't necessarily think that every business that was viable in February is going to be viable next February.
0: Kath, let's come to your perspective because you look right across uh, all of this and um, one of the things that you've been commenting on quite a lot is the communications and government communications in this. Let's start with that. How would you give us an account of government communications so far? We got Kath speaking about communications. Yeah, speaking about communications
4: and failing to unmute my mic, um, it's been mixed. The government have uh, obviously started off with you know a bit of a hit and miss uh, in the early days of the crisis. There was a, a big push for them to actually move to having uh, daily press conferences. They did that. They then trotted out uh, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor, who's done you know done a really good job of actually bringing, you know, detailed expertise to bear on this. And there's now a consistent rhythm in how the government is communicating. But they've had a lot of missteps um, and some of them are really going to be very important for the next phase because we've been talking about the fact that this, you know, the initial lockdown period had to happen, had to happen very quickly. But also it was relatively uniform, relatively um, sort of simple compared to what comes next in terms of what it did, you know, we were all um, staying at home except for key workers, um, the restrictions on the reasons why you could and could not go outside, uh, although causing a lot of confusion and causing a lot of confusion in law, as well as um, in people's sort of understanding of the the guidance that the government were putting out. But still, were relatively easy for people to get their head around. But now we're talking about the possibility of people um, going back, some people going back to work, perhaps different regions having a different response in the next phase, perhaps different sectors of the economy. And again, different groups of people perhaps being allowed greater amounts of freedom than others. And that's a really confusing picture for um, the government to be able to sort of keep an eye on and also to be able to communicate to people. And that's going to cause them a lot of problems, not just um, in terms of sort of making sure that their messaging gets out you know at the moment they've got a very simple slogan on staying home saving lives and protecting the nhs but mm-hmm. as they move into a next phase it's going to get a lot more complicated uh, but they've also got to think about the legal restrictions around all of that you know what happens when they're discriminating against other people how are they going to manage that um and they've also got just, to think just, about just, the devol- yeah, just, um, yeah.
0: just take that point for a second that about the legal <laughs> restrictions um just tell us a bit more about 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 that and what they how sensitive that is for the government
4: it's hugely sensitive so parliament today are actually looking at the regulations that the UK government put in place to enforce the lockdown so they went through a secondary legislation because we had existing legislative public health legislation that the government were able to use Um, but there's two issues there one is that there's a sort of question being asked about whether the Original legislation could actually do the thing that they did because it was it was supposed to be about quarantining particular groups of people in a public health emergency, not the entire country. So that's going to have to be worked out at the moment, obviously. You know, most people are very willing to sort of abide by what the government are guiding them to do. And it's only in a few cases that police are actually having to get involved. But there's also confusion across the different devolved nations. It's actually four different lockdowns effectively that have been put into place. And so they were put in place very largely quite uniformly, but there was still, you know, slight divergences in how they did it. And then there's the difference between the guidance that the government have put out saying when and where you can go out when they think is a good idea for you to go out and when it is not. And then what the actual law says, which is a different thing.
0: How confident do you think we should be that Parliament can actually scrutinise this legislation, given that it's it's holding meetings uh, remotely and even Prime Minister's questions is turning a, a kind of um, uh, just a few people there and the others inevitably. um back in their constituencies, in their homes.
4: Yeah, some of it it's going to do well. Uh, So select committees have now been operating virtually for quite a period of time. and A lot of them are going to be looking into aspects of this, like uh, human rights uh, and discrimination, whether or not the lockdown working in variable ways is going to affect any of those. Other things are harder, particularly legislation. Um, You can't get everyone in the chamber. Uh, the normal sort of mechanisms for scrutinizing legislation and scrutinizing huge amounts of it are much more difficult and you won't get the same kind of challenge. Uh, They've also thus far have to been at speed. Now they might have a bit more time and that's why it's really important actually that uh, the government give parliament enough time to be able to scrutinize measures before they put them in place. And again, going to our point about iterating to make sure that they can actually think about them and adjust them as they go along uh, so it's a, it's kind of a, a huge test for parliament but they should be able to manage sort of the big parts of it quite well mm.
0: I want to ask you all one thing, which has come in as a, as a, as a question, and before we go to some of the more detailed questions, and it's come in from Steve, Steve O'Neill, saying um, everyone's talking about a vaccine being ready in 18 months or sooner. What what if what if it turns out not to be possible? There was discussion, uh, much discussion of um, the, you know the expectations of an AIDS virus when. Um, uh, the the disease was first identified uh, and people say, well, it'll be a year or two or something before we have a vaccine and and we're here some decades on. uh, And no. What difference does it make to the picture you've been describing if there isn't a vaccine?
3: Uh, Shall I have a go first? I mean, to to state the obvious, it's going to make it much, much more difficult. And I think your um, correspondent is absolutely right to raise it as a potential risk. Uh, it's not just the discovery of a vaccine. No vaccine has ever been manufactured and deployed at that speed and scale in history. Clearly, you would need several billion doses administered. That's not easy to do. Normally, these programs of vaccination that have eliminated important diseases will have taken many decades to do. And um, you know, how do you make sure that it's safe or reliable? Uh, the testing is being accelerated beyond. But what's the risks of, you know, a bad batch and people thinking they're cured and they're not. So it's it's a, it's a significant risk. And the popular view is that you need an incredibly good testing and tracing methodology to handle the alternative, which is that it's always out there at a level that could threaten a lot of the population. And we are nowhere near the the infrastructure and the trained staff in order to do that. Yeah.
0: And it, it does... Alex I wanted to ask you something in particular you, you were quite involved as a civil servant with uh, some of the the Brexit planning and civil servants at that point were having to plan for you know, several versions of the future at the same time do you think in a way the government has to plan at this point for a, a future with a vaccine and one without where there isn't a snapping back to uh, normal life as it was?
2: So I am um... It's really interesting and I uh, the, the, the the parallels sort of the, the divergences and the similarities with uh, no deal planning are, are, are endlessly fascinating. I think um, in, in a funny sort of way, this is um, uh, a bit easier in terms of scenarios, it's harder in terms of scale and logistics and the impact on people's lives, but I don't think and I would be surprised if the government was now planning for a kind of post-corona world, um, mm-hmm. Uh, in you know in in the medium term by which i mean a year two years possibly even a bit longer than that um you're anticipating a world in which government and society needs to operate living with the corona virus and dealing with it so i don't think um other than scaling up the research programs and kind of anticipating a future of and doing everything possible to support Um, uh, those uh, that vaccination work that's happening in the in the UK and collaborating internationally I think the government should um, for the moment can quite clearly have in mind how do we adapt our society for living with this virus and that has certain consequences and we've seen in some of the you know some of the briefing that's come out let's see what the government says about the exit strategy but they're thinking about advice on reconfiguring uh, offices uh, on public transport on on so on so this doesn't feel um, this doesn't feel quite as different in terms of putting those different scenarios and those different um, goggles on. In, in 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 that sense.
0: Yeah, and Kath, I wanted to ask you. There's not. Been, I mean, the, the civil liberties um, could, uh, constituency has has not been particularly noisy over this. Has absolutely raised concerns, but has accepted the public emergency. But there are now quite a lot of um, particularly conservative MPs, uh, and some of those who were took some of some of the hardest lines on on, on Brexit now being very noisy um and beginning to be more and more so about the uh need to get back to protections of liberties and for government not to have these powers forever um and not to keep people locked up in their houses forever and so on um where do you think that that is going to go
4: um at the moment i think it is going to it's going to ramp up in both parliament and in the courts we've also seen the first uh judicial review, so the first case where somebody has brought the government to court over the lockdown restrictions Um, you're going to see more of those particularly as you move into a new phase where there is a more variated uh, response Um, I mean one of the big debates that's happened over the weekend has been whether or not the uh, those over 70 are actually mandated to stay in lockdown or whether it's just government guidance and uh, you know the health secretary putting out one line But the regulations on the government's website say something different. Um, So you're going to start to get into all sorts of cases like that where people start sort of pushing back um, about it as a form of um, discrimination. And the other side of it is we're talking about contact uh, tracing and testing as one way in the absence of a vaccine that the government can try and get us back to some kind of normal life. But that will involve all sorts of questions around people's data about, you know, information sharing and so forth. So there's going to be all sorts of uh, cases, I think, as this goes on.
0: Yes but which brings us back to that, 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 that question about what if there isn't a vaccine um let's press on to the, the the next one we've got a question from jennifer saying the plan from ireland is very detailed for each phase and across different parts of society really a roadmap there with all kinds of dates and or implied dates on it um and uh, she's saying uh, that we've been discussing how the uk plan may be similar in content do we think that it's going to be as detailed as that who wants to start you could be proved wrong by monday
2: shall, shall i have a go given i raised ireland and then everyone else can uh, uh, can uh, disagree with me I, I think um uh i think it 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 will be similar in that it deals with the same issues um it, it, it inevitably um we don't know obviously what what's going to be in the government's plan although i wouldn't be surprised if um this 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 really is a hostage to fortune, but if it sort of surprises us on the on the detail side, if you like, some of the briefing that's come out um, uh, in the Financial Times and the other reports uh, last night and this morning do seem to suggest that they're getting into some quite granular discussions with the trade unions, with employers um, about um, about the detail of how offices and, and, and public transport, as I said, will work. So I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure there'll be as much of a kind of you know, rhythm and phasing, though, though, mm. though we'll see. But I, I do think there'll need to be enough meat into it, into it, to kind of give us a clear direction and uh, and to get into some of the specifics. So, so we'll see. But it will, it will be trading off the same things. Um, that the really interesting thing about the Ireland plan is that kind of three-week waves of, um, uh, of 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 um, opening up, if you like. The extent to which that, going back to our iteration versus U-turn point, the extent to which that survives reality will be really, um, really interesting to see.
0: Is this proportionately much easier for a government to handle if there are fewer people?
2: Smaller Ireland being a smaller country. I, yeah. I, I, I suppose it's the it's it's the concentration. The thing that seems hardest to me is the concentration in very large cities. So London is an enormous challenge. Here. So it, it's the it's the density rather than the rather than the size. Although I suppose the complexity of the economy and um, uh, and the society more generally does play into that. Mm.
0: Giles and Gemma, what do you think about this, this business which has come up in, in, in a few questions we've, we've got about um, let it, treating different parts of the country differently from others?
1: I think it's something the government clearly have to think about given that different parts of the country have been differently affected and as Alex just said, the very different challenges that you have in very densely populated urban areas versus the extent to which you may be able to ease restrictions on much less densely populated areas where perhaps people drive to work rather than being reliant on public transport and those sorts of things. So I think it has to be on the government's agenda to think about that. The challenges on the other side are clearly, firstly, the one that Kath was alluding to about the difficulty of communicating if people in different parts of the country are allowed to do things differently and the sense of unfairness of, why am I not allowed to do that when those people are? And we've already seen people like Andy Burnham in Manchester saying that he would not take a positive view of it if London were allowed to do things before Manchester was, for example. But also, whether or not parts of the country can actually operate in isolation from one another depends on how the businesses in those different parts of the country are interconnected including whether people commute from one area to another and how you deal with those so it's not not a trivial question at all i think it should be looked at but there are lots of reasons why it might end up not being the right answer
0: we'd learn anything about that from the way the us is treating it, it is obviously very a federal country where the states have a lot of freedom to make up their own plans
1: So they're obviously doing it by default, as you say, in a sense, because the lockdowns are in many ways state driven. My understanding is there are some issues there with people who commute across state lines and how they would treat those. Um, And I guess in the UK, our local authorities don't in a sense have the sort of enforcement powers that perhaps state um, governments do in the US to stop people moving into your area if if they have released and you haven't, for example.
0: Mm which brings me neatly to a question from martin wheatley who's an associate of the ifg he says um this is something of a leading question i think there's been some criticism of central government for duplicating or bypassing local councils where they're better placed to lead aspects of the response for example volunteering local distribution of, of personal protective equipment and now testing and tracing which councils have trained public and environmental health personnel he says is this criticism fair um And uh, how should central government approach its relationship with councils from now on? I mean, a really important question about how uh, the centre, in such a centralised operation as fighting this virus, deals with uh, all the um, localities, which it really has to. So, I
2: can have a go at that if that, uh, if if you like. I I think. Uh, is is the criticism fair or not? Well, yes, in parts probably. No, in other parts, inevitable to to sit on the fence. But I think the the point there is that local local authorities are. Um, you know, you, you can't respond to a crisis like this without local authorities and without using the local resilience for uh, and the infrastructure that's there. There's a there's an obvious but important point about, about how um, local authorities have, for decades actually, but particularly over the last ten years or so, really struggled with funding and have been uh, at the front line of the um, of of the cuts. Um, Generally, I think local authorities will try to maintain their um, civil resilience um, uh, uh, infrastructure as, uh, as best they can. But it would be very surprising if that hadn't been um, a victim of, uh, of, of the last um, uh, kind of tight, tight budgetary years. I think um, yes, the government probably could make more use both as a sort of intelligence gathering network, but also as a delivery, a, a delivery, um, a, a, a delivery um, structure. I think one of the Interesting and important points that will come out of any uh, inquiry when we have the time to look back at this, and and also international comparisons, is how the um, the overall um, England and UK. Um, uh, sort of structures um, uh, were, you know, the, the areas in which they were strong in response and the areas in which they were weaker compared to, say, some of the country around Germany and the German health system, and the German civil uh, resilience point. I mean, just uh, as, as we're talking about this on on um, uh, devolution, it plays slightly to so what Gemma was saying about crossing state lines. It's really, and Kath mentioned it earlier as well, it's really, it, we, we don't have a kind of, uh, a sort of, devolution mindset often on on this there's a kind of there's a there's there's an assumption in the US that the states might do different things and there's an assumption in the UK that the whole of the UK will do um, will do the same thing and that applies in at a regional level but particularly across the different nation states and one of the things we kind of as a uh, sort of politically and culturally probably need to get better at is recognising that there'll be differentiation between um, between the, the nations of the, of the UK, particularly as we get into the exit strategy. And quick plug for colleagues, uh, the, there's a report coming out soon uh, on, yeah, on that that's question.
0: Speak to it, no, it's coming out this week. Cathy, do you want to add anything on
4: that? Yeah, I mean, look, on local governments, um, yes, the government could have done better, particularly given that the infrastructure around planning for these kind of emergencies has always got a local emergency um, fora to it. So um, yes, there's a lot more that they could do. And particularly when you're thinking about comms, when you're thinking about the confusion around the lockdown thus far, there's a lot actually that local authorities have been doing when we think about which parks we've all been able to access you know what kind of outside activities you're able to do local governments have been really important in all of those kinds of questions and will continue to be so so um, there's actually a huge amount of what they're doing and that you know even things like the rubbish deliveries and making sure that in the current context they can you know compete with what has been probably a massive raise in demand in certain areas all of those kind of questions are hugely important so for the next phase the government the central government needs to get better at that Um, On devolution, yes, we've got a great paper coming out that will answer a lot of these questions.
0: Great. Okay, let's come back to the economic front. Um, And uh, a question from Sir Alan Bailey, which says after the 2009 bank bailout, there were criticisms that the banks were rescued by the taxpayer without any compensating social benefits. They calls it socialism on the way down, capitalism on the way up. As the government spends heavily again to rescue businesses, can anything be done to avoid similar something for nothing accusations? Taking a share of equity as compared to unconditional loans or guarantees might be part of the answer. Is this feasible? How would it work? Or are there better ways? Giles, can I throw that to you first and, and come to Jeremy? Yes.
3: Yes. Thank you very much. Um, firstly, yes, he's right. That is exactly how it was seen in 2009. There was a standard answer, which I have half half of my sympathy with, which is we did get something back. We got an economy that didn't collapse in ruins. That was the point of bailing out the banks. They were an intermediary in our economy. And if you hadn't bailed them out, goodness knows what would have happened to gross domestic product and unemployment. That was meant to be the return. And also in terms of equity stakes, yes, the 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 Brown government was blessed with two enormous stakes in Lloyds H Boss and Royal Bank of Scotland. And 10, 15 years later, I think we're still struggling to sell them for a profit, so be careful what you wish for. But equity was part of it. In fact, equity was the decisive answer in the end. It was equity that was needed more than loans to really put a stop to that incredibly scary phase of the crisis. Yes, he makes a very good point that we should be thinking about equity this time round, not just from the social justice point of view. Are we getting something in return? Because, again, we are getting something in return. And if the economy doesn't collapse into a pile of ruins, we have got something in return. But equity is also a much more well structured intervention for companies that might not think they've got the means to repay debt on the schedule that you normally need to and might behave in a way that we don't want them to if they're burdened with debt. So they might stop investing, stop hiring, do everything they can to pay back the debt. So equity is a better structured intervention in that if things go well, you can pay the government back. If they don't, you don't. And that's kind of the sort of bargain we want. So yes, they should be thinking about that. Final point though, it's much, much more complicated. Equity normally involves a very difficult calculation it's easy to do on a case by case basis or with a bunch of bankers in a room in the treasury with a lot of pizza it's not possible to do that with about 50,000 small and medium sized businesses at once so they need to do that but they need a whole new mechanism to deliver it
0: Jenna. beyond the pizza mechanism yeah um, <laughs> yeah i mean perhaps just to sort of Extend this question of
1: who benefits and who should pay back. I mean, there will also be an interesting question if there are any tax changes coming at the end of this um, and a point that Rishi Sunak sort of alluded to when he was announcing the support for the self-employed because What we have seen is the government stepping in with all sorts of new financial support packages that go beyond what our normal welfare system would provide. And some of these have ended up going to groups who historically have paid lower rates of tax, partly in theory justified on the grounds that Uh, they have lower entitlements to state benefits Mm. Um, that has it's never really been true for the self-employed that that was the trade-off but that was always the perception of what it was and clearly the government has now stepped in in a huge way to support the self-employed actually with something that is more generous than what employees are getting because employees actually have to have been furloughed and not be getting their pay in order to get their 80% furlough pay whereas the self-employed can have 80% of their pre coronavirus profits paid to them even if they are able to carry on working in some capacity so there'll be some interesting questions to come there about the extent to which we restructure who ends up paying tax in the UK in recognition of this what we have realized is that the government's kind of implicit support for groups is a lot larger than perhaps we were recognizing before Um, there's a third group who have yet to be helped um, through the government which is those who are own and manage their own companies and take their income through dividends are not currently being bailed out. There's a lot of pressure um, to pay money to that group but obviously raises an even bigger question because um, many people take income in that form because it is much less heavily taxed than to take it as wages.
0: A chance to sort out some of these things. Okay, that, that brings us neatly onto next question. Um, what we think about whether the government has lost sight of the importance of the university sector in particular talking, talking about particular groups, um, the importance of the university sector to future skills, innovation and prosperity. the university sector obviously parts of it struggling already before this came along, um, struggling financially and, uh, and and now suddenly being uh, deprived of large numbers of overseas students who were paying uh, much more than uk students and which universities have been uh, relying on for a lot of their income. Um, so this is, this is really two questions that... Will, uh, do we think the government has lost sight of that? But beyond that, what do we think the government ought to do about the propping up the university sector in particular?
3: If, if I can make one point, it's a reminder that even in the most extreme times which we're going through, politics doesn't disappear entirely. And this was a government that already had a political agenda towards universities and education in the round. Um, as, for example, in its manifesto, the Orga report, which looks very critically at how we're currently funding universities and the balance between further education and higher education. Uh, That was uh, an important agenda for the government to look at this again. So when the crisis comes along and the sector says, hold it, we've got a problem. The government isn't entirely forgetting that it also has another agenda, which is the reform of higher education. Now, whether that means less reliance on overseas students or a bigger emphasis on more applied R&D or more help for the universities outside of the southeast. All of these are really important agendas and it doesn't sound like they've forgotten them. And in particular, the basic charge that you can easily dispute that higher education had it easy in the first such phase of austerity as we'll now call it from 2010 onwards and maybe needs a more critical look now. All of that said, this is, this is a really, really important industry. It's one that often serves a lot of important employment outside of the Southeast already. They've got to be very careful before they assume that you can simply allow it to be restructured in a crisis because you could lose a lot of very valuable assets there.
0: Yes, come on, well, I've, um, I've got two really on on um, workplace issues, let me take them together. One from Stefan Czerniawski, who is saying that uh, what about sectoral variation and how the, the, the government treats um, businesses? He says it's far easier to be trivial to operate safely as a window cleaner than providing a close personal service such as a hairdresser. And are we going to end up with a multi-speed economy? And then another one on the same well, parallel lines, if you like, say, how should the government approach the enforcement of basic safety measures in workspaces by employers? Should companies retain large uh, amounts of discretion when determining what's safe for their employees, or should the government impose certain minimum requirements? Shall I take yeah. the first
1: we already do have sectoral variation in the sense that supermarkets are still open, pharmacies are still open. Um, so the way forward probably does involve some sectoral variation as well, but that's presum- likely to kind of come on two margins. The first margin will be exactly as the question kind of outlined, which are the businesses in which there is least risk of spreading coronavirus if you allow those businesses to operate. And the evidence seems to be that those are things that happen outdoors, things that happen in such a way that people don't need to come into contact with one another must be lower risk for spreading coronavirus than other things. But the other reason government might want to think about a sectoral approach would actually be trying to minimise the long term economic harms that are storing up so that those parts of the economy that are most problematic in terms of Um, long-term economic damage and I mean Bronwyn you mentioned earlier about schools the one big reason for wanting to reopen schools is not because it's a low-risk environment for spreading coronavirus it's not only because it would help parents to get back to work it's because actually school is valuable to children for their future prospects and it's particularly valuable to the most disadvantaged children so even if there were a risk of spreading coronavirus by opening schools there may be strong reasons on the other hand why you would want to try and prioritize that as one of the things you open up first
0: and how specific should the government be about whether you can run a canteen how far you should sit from your colleague that kind of thing
1: Um, i guess there are sort of three three margins what they can regulate these things um, and then there's a question about the degree of enforcement, and there's, always, there's clearly going to be a limit to the government's capacity to actually enforce this. They cannot be going around to every business checking that people are doing that. The other thing they could do if um, regulation isn't enough or if businesses face high costs from complying with those regulations would actually be to make uh, grants or tax cuts available to help businesses to finance the sort of adjustments that they're asking them to do and to encourage them to do those. The
2: other so the, sorry, go on. So I was going to say the other, the other point on that, uh, uh, I think, is the it's there will need to be some sort of you know minimum standard for these things to ensure public confidence because uh, there's there's going to need to be some sort of standardisation I think about how similar types of businesses operate even if it's you know not really enforced or if there's kind of variation at the margins because otherwise um, how can the government say it's safe for people to go back to work how can they kind of give people that. Assurances on the um, on the sector versus uh, uh, regional thing. I would defer to uh, Gemma and uh, Giles definitely, but I, I think some sort of sectoral um, differentiation is more likely than regional or geographical differentiation for the for the reasons that, that Gemma said. But also, it's it is easier to communicate and and, and explain that. I was, there was some difference in terms of London and major cities and the, and the density of populations there, but sectoral sectoral approach seems far kind of far um, cl- clearer and cleaner and um, potentially more beneficial to me.
0: Thanks for that. And in both your answer and Gemma's, there is an answer to the question from Professor Andrew Gray, who's the Emeritus Professor of Public Management at Durham University, talking about the balance between command and incentives and some appeals to behavioural unity, he calls them communion. Uh, And I I think you've ended up in the same space that his question seems to be suggesting, which is uh, a a quite high degree of uh, need for appeals to people to um, be sensible. Um, but not being able to enforce all that. Let's just come to the the, the last question um, from Eve Alcock. Um, it's as last we've got time for, I think, on how the government might consider and mitigate against um, the impact on equality and diversity um, or inequality and diversity uh, of its decisions and how they might seek to take that into uh account that's a question which potentially very wide-ranging uh, but also uh, she ends up with saying but how should they how should they do this
3: in their planning how to deal with inequality through their planning of um exiting the lockdown i think um I
0: think it means how or how, at least how to make sure that their planning doesn't exacerbate inequality and we've had quite a lot of discussion already about how some of the most vulnerable in society are going to be disproportionately hit, particularly if they haven't got secure jobs or uh, yes. are at school or so on.
3: Can I first give the, uh, can I give a treasury answer which is we need to be fully aware of it, we need to calculate it, we need to understand it, but the place to address inequality is later through the tax system and so forth. So we don't want to say, look, we wouldn't want to open this sector normally because it's dangerous health-wise, or is. But we, because it really matters for inequality, we're going to anyway. I still think the health matters will predominate there, but. but G-
0: Giles, look- can I just can I just ask you on that? Aren't schools exactly that uh, a case of that? That um, that people are saying, you know, particularly schools, uh, children from um, you know poor or chaotic families are. Uh, really going to lose um, months if not a year of education on this and find it very hard to, and um, at some point almost regardless of of the health uh, implications we need to reopen the schools for those those children's sake. Isn't
3: isn't that kind of argument developing? It is a very important, I mean that's a very very good challenge and um, the fact is we should be opening schools for lots of reasons including they're essential for looking after the kids for the people who are working in difficult jobs and they don't have the, the they don't have any other alternative to looking after them so that will come into the economic calculation I should hope but um, no it's it's a very good challenge but you wouldn't want to do it if it was dangerous purely because of the inequality issue people will say you're just endangering people more through their health and if you have a real issue with the inequality you need to make sure that you address it during the very very long restructuring phase we're going to have afterwards I'm, I'm just concerned that if we making the wrong decisions at this point right now for a month or two can have really long term effects that will will outweigh anything you're trying to do there. So do understand the inequality effects you have and address them massively during the very big phase that follows. But I'll be very interested to hear what Alex and Gemma think and Kath. Gemma, can I just, oh,
0: sorry,
4: oh, Kat, yes. Now, can I just jump in and put it a different way, which is thus far this crisis hasn't been hugely political you know there's been a lot of obviously criticism of the government on a number of fronts the procurement of ppe whether it should have gone into the lockdown earlier communications that those kind of things but actually quite a lot of cross-party support for, for the government's overarching approach um as we go into a longer term kind of uh, lockdown of a different kind and as we start to see these kind of questions played out in people's lives mps as you know uh, getting sort of uh, opinions back from their constituents and so forth this is going to get much more political uh, people are going to start to debate these issues and find them you know much harder to, to just talk about in terms of purely the evidence and so forth so i think the government are going to find it more and more difficult on all of these fronts and which is all the more reason why it needs to be able to iterate when it can, and also have good data, and good evidence behind what it's doing.
2: I I agree. Um to, to come very briefly on that, I, I agree entirely with with Kath on that. Really, just to say nothing more than um, uh, it's 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 sort of about who, who wins the piece and how that those debates are uh, are framed. Uh, and it, it does feel we've talked about this on uh, IFG um, events and and podcasts before, but. um uh, the, the the contours of the next phase are starting to become a bit clearer, but um, it still feels like um, it's quite early days in terms of knowing what sort of you know what sort of economy, what sort of um, uh, society will come out come come out of this, and that that depends on uh, on on who wins the, the the framing of the political debate in in a way, as Kath was saying.
1: I just um, very finally for me, I think Giles is absolutely right in the sense of. government we need to think about not what just the government can achieve or is achieving through the easing of lockdown restrictions but the wider public policy support package i think probably what you were getting at Bronwyn with the issue with schools is that actually the concern there is that if children miss out on a key part of their education that harms their long-term prospects in a way that public policy finds very hard to compensate for um, simply offering people more generous benefits for the rest of their lives doesn't really feel like a an adequate trade-off for that there may well be other areas where as Giles says um, it might be more sensible given the health risks of easing restrictions in one particular area. Perhaps there is an alternative policy, which is to provide more generous support in another way to deal with that short term inequality. Can't think of a great example off the top of my head, Um, but we should think of these things in the round. But I think this is also why coming back to sort of where we started, the government needs to be clear about what its objectives are, both in the big picture and how it weights the prospects of different parts of society. This is normally what we elect governments on is those kind of value judgments. Yes. Those will inevitably have to shape how we trade off limiting public health risks versus trying to achieve other objectives. And without a clear sense of how the government is prioritizing those things, no one has really a, a clear idea of where we're going to go to or how the government will respond yeah. as new information comes in.
0: Yeah. All right, we've got two minutes. I'm going to squeeze in one micro question, which is for Giles from Vicky Price, and it goes like this. Does Giles uh, think that as as the bean counters at the Treasury, this is all kinds of, it's a loaded question, start regaining control, that a lot of the levelling up and regional agenda and the massive infrastructure programme announced on March 11th will fall by the wayside?
3: You've got one minute. Uh, I think it is going to happen to a certain degree, yes. I think so because uh, there's going to be a big fiscal challenge. There is nothing to be cut from the existing public sector envelope as Institute for Government researchers found a lot of public services were at stretching point before we went into this crisis. What is left to be cut? Some of the massive ambition to like build roads that will take five or ten years. I, I think maybe research and development is going to come a little under pressure. That was one of the levelling up tools because this is, again, money that takes a long time to get out. So, yes, I think it will come under pressure simply for fiscal reasons, but also the sheer dominance of the coronavirus recession is going to take so much longer to come through and the Treasury's preeminence, as your questioner seems to imply, will have returned a little bit, partly because they've played a really good game. They've done really well and people are going to be looking for them, looking at them and saying, you know what works, tell us what to do. And the Treasury's unsentimental math doesn't always deal well with manifesto commitments.
0: OK, on that note. Thank you all very much. Thank you everyone who's sent in questions, who's been listening through this, watching. And uh please join us for our next one. And we've uh, referred to last week's uh, uh big reports, uh three of them there, and more to come this week, beginning with the devolution report. See you soon.